Hello, everyone. This is Brad Thomas with the Ground Up podcast. And today we're going to be obviously talking about real estate, uh, but we're going to steer off the path a little bit and move away from the, pub, uh, the publicly traded space and kind of move over to the privately traded space. And I am honored today to have my good friend uh, here on the podcast, Brad Watt. Uh, Brad is the president of Petra Capital. Uh, Brad, it's good to see you today. Hey, you too, Brad. We'll try, we'll try to keep it uh, as, as non-confusing as possible with two Brads, huh? Exactly. Well, good guy, bad guy, right? So <laughs> There you go. I'll be the bad cop today. Um, so yeah, Brad, listen, I'm, I mean, we've known, I've known you for, uh, for quite a while and uh, your experience uh, in the private side of the, of the real estate business is really, uh, you know, unmatched, um, especially your uh, focus on the 1031 market, which, uh, which we'll talk about shortly. But for, for many of our listeners here who, who may not be as familiar with the various uh, ways to invest privately, uh, obviously, you know, I've invested a lot privately in my background, uh, have owned, you know, net lease properties and duplexes and uh, warehouses and a variety of other, other things. We would invest through LLCs typically uh, in these various partnerships. But Brad, could you, would you mind touching on a little bit of, of the Reg A and the Reg D and kind of what those are? I know we're seeing an increasingly, uh, increasing numbers in this, in this Reg A space. Uh, but can you, can you, at a high level, uh, tell the audience a little bit about what is a Reg A and what is a Reg D? Yeah, um, thanks again for having me on the, the show, Brad. And you know, as, as usual, I'm sure we're going to have some riveting conversation. But um, yeah, you know, I think people get uh, uh, a little bit hung up by some of the nomenclature, some of the acronyms that get used in, in uh, offering structures, if you will. But I always like to think of real estate as the uh, quote unquote contents of the package. You know, what are you, what are you investing in? What are the fundamentals? What are the business formats? What do the credits look like? You know, getting down to the basic fundamentals of the real estate and then how you structure that real estate is generally uh, designed around the type of investor. Is it a private investor? Is it a public investor? Is it a family partnership? Um, so, so there's different structures that you can put around the real estate, or I call them wrappers. And what a Reg A or a Reg D is strictly a wrapper that's really just uh, more or less sanctioned by you know, some of the securities laws dating all the way back to 1933 with the Securities and Exchange Act of 33, which essentially set forth the um, suitable structures that you can offer securities in and the types of disclosure, the amount of disclosure that has to be given to investors, basically a, a fair representation, full disclosure and full transparency and the regulatory and the compliance that has to go around a certain real estate offering or any offering of securities. So Reg A and Reg D are strictly just securities uh, designations, if you will, for the types of offerings. A Reg A is a public offering. It's uh, limited. It was part of the uh, Jobs and uh, Tax Reform Act, Jobs Act and Tax Reform of 2017 that was enacted by Trump and basically allows for smaller issuers, a Reg A, to raise up to $50 million in essentially an IPO. But it's sort of a it's a, it's a public offering light, and the 
requirements for filing, the regulatory requirements, the cost of putting together a Reg A are much less than a traditional S11, S11 or a public filing. So essentially it allows smaller, again, investors or rather smaller issuers to get to the public markets quicker and more efficiently through a Reg A plus, but it is a public offering structure. By comparison, a Reg D, uh, again, promulgated by um, Certain Securities and Exchange Act of 33 and some amendments that have come out, come after that, essentially a Reg D is nothing more than a private placement. It's not a public issuance, it's a private issuance of securities. Again, can be financial assets, it could be real estate, it could be any type of asset, but it's the structure that's done in a private placement format as opposed to a public offering. Generally speaking, for a Reg D, you have to have certain accreditation requirements. Investors have to have a higher net worth, they have to have higher incomes, they typically have to prove that they're more sophisticated, and frankly, they're taking, it's perceived, of course, that they're taking more risk with a private placement because you don't have all the public filings and the public disclosures that you would have in a public offering. So they tend to have, they're still reporting entities, but not public reporting entities, private. So you're not gonna get quite the same level of transparency or information in a Reg D that you might get in a public offering. But Reg Ds can be anywhere from a small raise of two or $3 million. Uh, they can go all the way up to 100, $200 million. There's really no limit on the size of a Reg D offering. There's only a limit as to how many investors you can have. And once you reach a certain investor number, you have to start doing what's called public reporting. So Reg A, Reg D are just wrappers, just structures that are, that are designed to accommodate the type of real estate or securities offering that you're making. Great, yeah, I, um, we just initiated coverage on Broadstone NetLease, which I'm, I know you're familiar with. Sure. Um, and they um, started out in that, in that Reg D environment and got to a very large scale, over a billion dollars in of course, now we cover them as a publicly traded REIT. Um, Brad, I want to touch on the non-traded space. So this is, I know you've, uh, uh, your history and a lot, of, a lot of the places you've been have been non-traded REITs. Um, in, the, in, the, in the last recession, in the 2009 and 2010 time period, there were a, just a large number of non-traded REITs. Um, but that, that business model seems to have um, I won't say died down, but it's certainly not as, as relevant as it was, you know, a decade or so ago. Um, how do you, what is the, what is the state of the non-traded REIT industry today? Uh, today it's, uh, you know, at its peak, it was raising about $20 billion a year. Uh, I believe this year, uh, the market, uh, the non-traded REIT sector will probably close out somewhere around six to eight billion dollars in equity raise so it's off uh, maybe 70 percent from its peak um, the you know the bottom line is the non-traded REIT space has well well some sponsors have done quite well and they've shown uh, value uh, relate relative value to the prop properties that they're buying they've been able to not only distribute income or distributions but also create some residual growth or appreciation. But unfortunately, uh, all non-traded REITs are not created equal, just like all real estate's not created equal. 
And so some of the sponsors haven't fared so well. And part of that uh, is relative to the timing in which they bought the properties. Uh, sometimes it's related to management. Sometimes it's related to the asset class itself going through cyclical changes and uh, times of valuations, uh, the fluctuation in valuations. And so sometimes uh, uh, market conditions will dictate outcomes. Other times uh, intrinsic management can dictate the outcomes of real estate. So I would say that the industry has shrunk as a result of some of the performance issues, but also let's be honest, um, with publicly traded REITs, sometimes trading, and especially in this recent past, at a discount to its, uh, their NAV, their net asset values, um, some of the dividend yields on these publicly traded REITs have been you know, just at, par at parity with the non-traded. So if I can get a four to 6% dividend in a traded REIT that's got full public reporting, full transparency, and frankly, full liquidity, that I can get out anytime I want, and it's paying relatively the same dividend yield, or at least on a risk-adjusted basis, it's paying the same dividend yield. Why wouldn't I maybe choose to go to publicly traded versus private REIT or publicly registered non-traded REIT route? So all things being equal, the market's down, I think, because of some prior performance issues, as well as just the relative uh, risk parity for going into publicly traded REITs versus non-traded and dividend yield. Yeah, great. And uh, I wanted to ask you about kind of moving over to the 1031 exchange space. I know this is one that's uh, been increasingly uh, uh, discussed uh, in this uh, political environment uh, today. And I know you've been uh, in the 1031 space or sector for uh, quite a uh, number of years, uh, if not decades. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the, the Delaware Statutory Trust and what exactly the DST, what exactly that means and how uh, individual investors can utilize this 1031 exchange tool uh, within the DST arena? Sure. Uh, again, back to the, the wrappers we talked about earlier, just different real estate uh, structures or wrappers that go around the, the real estate itself, the contents, if you will. Uh, a DST, again, it's Delaware Statutory Trust, or DST for short. It's simply a legal structure, it's a legal entity that's formed in the state of Delaware. And it's designed specifically for 1031 exchange investors who want to access institutional quality real estate, but simply can't afford to buy a class A a multifamily office building for $100 million or an Amazon distribution facility for 60 or 70 million. They don't have enough capital to buy that on their own, but they want to have access to those types of properties. And the way they do it is through a fractional ownership structure known as a Delaware Statutory Trust. So a DST is nothing more than a pooled ownership structure of individual retail investors who are able to access institutional quality real estate and qualify for the 1031 tax deferral using that structure. So it's a very popular uh, way for smaller investors and the minimums are usually 100,000 to get into these DSPs. So you can imagine somebody sells a duplex, a fourplex, uh, maybe they uh, sell a business that owns the real estate and they can qualify the real estate underneath their business operation for a 1031. Uh, they may have three or four or 500,000 
and they certainly could, again, couldn't buy their own institutional quality property, but they could certainly buy a fractional share for that three to 400,000, and they simply go alongside other investors and share in a pro rata distribution of the rental income from those properties. So it's a great way for the small, I call them the everyday man or everyday woman investor, retail investor, to access much higher quality and frankly, get diversification. Uh, DSTs, because they're structured with multiple properties in the DSTs, so you have uh, multi-property ownership in one DST structure, you can gain broad diversification by asset type, by sector, by tenant, by geography. So uh, I like to say to people, it's not an exact parallel, but a DST gives you the option of almost creating your own little mini REIT, uh, real estate investment trust, with the 1031 uh, wrapper, if you will, to go around it. So that's a brief uh, explanation of DSTs. Great. So with regard to the 1031, again, we, we've seen a lot of news uh, lately. Uh, you know, part of the Biden ticket, have, we've, uh, we've seen the 1031 potentially being impacted um, you know, for individual investors and corporations. Of course, there are a number of REITs uh, that utilize 1031s as well. Um, but can you, how widely are 1031s used and what do you see as the potential, you know, impact if there were changes made to the 1031 um, laws? Yeah, great question. And uh, it's certainly a top of mind question for a lot of uh, 1031 or a lot of real estate owners who are planning to uh, exercise their 1031 exchange deferral option uh, when they trade out of their properties. Um, Ernst & Young, back in 2015, did a study that uh, basically analyzed the economic impact of 1031 exchanges on the economy. And what they came up with is that uh, 1031 exchanges represent somewhere between 8 tenths uh, or 0.8 and 1% of GDP, annual GDP. So if you look at the economic impact of a 1031 exchange, what you're doing by eliminating it or severely restricting it is that you would probably take anywhere from two to $300 billion a year out of the US economy. And that would include not only the lost productivity of, uh, of the real estate itself, not being traded or not being uh, transacted, but you would also uh, take in the values of those real estate uh, properties would likely go down when you take away the tax deferral. So there's another economic impact. That's a real one uh, because the deferral of taxes when you ca uh, add capital gains, federal and state, plus recapture tax, plus Medicare tax, uh, plus uh, local municipal and uh, 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 city taxes, you can have a, a tax burden anywhere from 30 to 40% in, in some cases in California. So if you think about the average exchange investor, let's say they sell a property for 500,000 and most of that's gained because they've depreciated it for 15, 20 years, uh, they could pay a tax bill of anywhere from 150 to $200,000 on a $500,000 sale. Well, that's a substantial amount of your, your earning power to evaporate. Uh, you cut your capital engine, you might say, down by 30 to 40%. And so now the investor has to make that remaining money work a lot harder to earn the same type of yield they could have earned 
if they had kept their tax deferral in place. So the economic loss to the GDP, the value of properties that would drop uh, significantly, uh, the cost of capital would be higher for these investors because they don't have the same efficiency when they go to borrow capital, they don't have the same tax efficiency built in. So the cost of capital is gonna go higher. Um, and not to mention all the jobs that will be affected. Think about all the people that touch the real estate business, the realtors, the bankers, the title companies, the appraisers, uh, the surveyors, the, the, the engineers, uh, the number of upstream and downstream jobs that would be eliminated uh, would be horrific. So eliminating 1031 exchanges will have an absolute downward effect and a devastating effect on the US economy. It's a bad idea considering that one out of every four baby boomers owns a second property. One out of four, $7 trillion is held by individual investors in commercial real estate. $7 trillion is owned by individual smaller investors that own commercial and resi-mercial, we call it, uh, rental property. If you took away 1031 exchange, you would absolutely eviscerate the wealth of several, several million people in this country that would never be regained. It's a bad idea. Uh, let's hope that uh, it survives the legislative attack. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot riding on this uh, on this election uh, for sure, and um, you know not to get too into <laughs> politics here, but uh, but you know I fully absolutely agree with you, and um, um, you know let's uh, let's hope that you know we can uh, you know we can continue to keep this law moving forward. And Brad, I want to talk a little bit last about one of our favorite sectors, uh, which. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of investor interest lately, which is the net lease space. Um, yep. These are long-term uh, mm -hmm. contractual leases, um, uh, uh, certainly a, a very predictable, reliable uh, asset uh, property sector for individual I, investors. I think I, you refer to it as swan income, don't you, Brad? Swan. Exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think he created that acronym. <laughs> Well, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. How's that? Yeah, yeah. I, I wish I should have been sending you some royalties now. <laughs> That's okay. Um, at any rate, how do you see this net lease sector today? I mean, you feel like it's it's in favor, out of favor. What what do, what do you see about the? Uh, how do you see in that 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 industry today? Well, you finally got me in my wheelhouse. Uh, I love net lease. I love the asset class. I've been a big fan of it for thirty years. Uh, I've probably um, syndicated or arranged and structured close to $10 billion of single tenant net lease properties in my career. And so uh, I am a very big fan of net lease. And the reason I am is, is, is it's clear to me that, that the problem with most people when they invest is they, they misalign their, their investment objectives and their risk tolerances with the type of real estate they own. And I think where most people are today with the aging baby boomers, aging demographics, and again, the sensitivity and frankly, the, the fear over the high risk equities market and, and the low yielding bond market, people are gravitating to real estate as a real asset, if you will, that pays a real dividend or a real distribution. It's tangible. So the majority of people out there want to have exposure to real estate. 
They just don't know what type of real estate is going to protect them in a downturn. Uh, what's weatherproofed, I like to say. And net lease has proven over up cycles, down cycles, recessions, corrections, in just about every economic environment, single tenant, credit tenant, net lease. This is high quality credit, uh, usually ranked as uh, triple B or above investment grade. Those types of assets have proven resiliency and durability in times of recession. Not all, not all retailers have, have survived, of course, but the what we call the essential services or essential properties type retailers uh, or, or net lease properties have done extraordinarily well. And in a world of now co coronavirus, COVID-19, where we have to start thinking about pandemic proofing our portfolios, I would like to see my investors, as I put them into these programs, these Delaware statutory trusts, to always have some exposure to single tenant and credit tenant net lease because I believe that's the anchor of a portfolio that's going to pay consistent and durable distributions, even if we hit another recession or as some fear a depression. I want to be tethered to credit in a recessionary environment. That's where I want to have my investors anchored in credit quality. So I like NetLease for its long-term leases, its credit tenants, and the business formats that tend to be recession resistant. So I'm a big fan and I believe uh, most real estate investors should have some exposure to credit tenant net lease. Right, and, and Brad, I wanna tie all this together. Um, hopefully my mother's listening. Um, and she has a, uh, a condominium that she purchased um, a while back and she doesn't have any debt. Um, I think just round numbers, let's say that she sells that for $150,000. If she found a buyer and she sold this, this uh, condo unit for $150,000. Now, she doesn't want to go out and use the 1031 and buy two duplexes. Um, right. Because she doesn't want to deal with the three T's, the tollage, the trash, and the taxes. Um, yeah, and the, and the tenants, by the way. So and the tenants. Four T's. <laughs> exactly, four T's. Right. right. Um, so... Walk me through that product. Can she get that $150,000 rolled into, because obviously 150 is not going to buy an advanced auto parts store or a no. CPS. So explain the mechanics of how she would take, say, 150000 of gains and move that into a DST. Yeah, great question. And, and, and frankly, a great case study. Uh, my average investor is somewhere between two hundred and four hundred thousand. and $400,000 in uh, investable proceeds, that's their uh, equity that's coming out of their 1031 exchange with, and they're faced with exactly the same dilemma you just described for your mom, that they cannot find a replacement property that matches those dollars that upgrades the quality of the property they own. They don't wanna go from a duplex to a fourplex or a fourplex to an eightplex. They're trying to get out of uh, tenants, trash and toilets in, in favor of uh, what I call the lifestyle three Ts, which are tea times, travel, and tennis. That's what they really <laughs> want. Uh, they've gone from ROI, return on investment, now they want ROL, and that's called return on life. So your mom could take her 150,000, by way of example, and invest it in a portfolio of uh, single tenant net lease properties. Uh, I have an example right now, I have a seven property DST that includes $5 generals and two Walgreens. 
and Dollar General and Walgreens are both triple B credit, so they're considered investment grade credit uh, rated by Standard and Poor. And uh, so you've got two investment grade credit tenants, seven properties, $5 Generals, two Walgreens in three different states. That's all in one DST portfolio. So your mom could make an investment of 150,000 and get exposure to seven properties in three states with two different sectors, pharmacy and general sundries or general merchandise, uh, what we call essential properties in this environment or essential services. And uh, she'd have $150,000 and she'd earn somewhere between a five and a half and a 6% uh, annual distribution on her money, but it's paid monthly. The distributions are paid monthly, the yields are calculated annually. So she'd have a very nice uh, portfolio uh, for $150,000 and very well diversified. And, and again, there's, 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 I'm sure fees related. So in general, I know every, I'm not asking you to, you know, specifically and sell this because obviously we're just talking a high level, but right. what kind of fees would she anticipate and where are you seeing in terms of, you know, that out of that 150, roughly how much of that would go out the door in terms of fees? You know, the uh, DSTs, there is a cost to providing them. But just like there is in any real estate transaction, there's always commissions to be paid to a broker somewhere. Uh, whether you're the buyer or the seller, there's always a commission built into the, the uh, real estate that you're buying or selling. So there are commissions to be paid in these DSTs to the registered licensed professionals that, that sell them and market them because they are sold as securities. Reg D, private placement security, back to that original question. Uh, so they have to be offered uh, in a security structure and they have to be offered by licensed and registered uh, security representatives, which I am. Um, the commissions are there. You also have regular real estate closing costs, title, appraisal, uh, reserves. A lot of these DSTs reserve capital because they don't want to go back and ask the investor to put money in later, which they frankly can't in a DST structure. It's one of the limitations. So you have commissions, you have reserves that again, really belong to the investor, but they're baked into the offering price. You have closing costs, and then you have uh, uh, just general offering costs, legal costs to put a DST together. When you add it all up, uh, you're somewhere between seven and 10% of the total purchase value of the DST, not just the equity, but the purchase value, which includes equity and debt. Most of these DSTs offer non-recourse debt as part of the structure and investors get to assume their portion of that non-recourse debt. So if you added up all the fees, Brad, it's probably between seven and 10%. If you did the same math for buying your own property, you're gonna wind up in a roughly the same place, seven to 10%. If you count closing costs, uh, lender origination fees, uh, reserves, commissions, all of that, roll it all up, you're in about, you're around a seven to 10% cost to get into a DSD. And kind of going back to our, you know, uh, friendly debate over the importance of this law, I think you articulated extremely well. Um, what are the other options? If the 1031 were to disappear, she's sitting there with $150,000 capital gains. Are there any other options? for her to not have to, again, and I know, I wanna be clear, 1031 is not a loophole. Eventually those taxes will get paid. It may not be 
it may be the next generation or the next generation. But right. I don't want to use that word loophole. We hear that a lot in the REIT space, by the way, you know, that REITs are loopholes because corporations are not right. taxes. Well, look, the individual investor is paying taxes on those dividend, on that dividend income. But it's a legitimate tax deferral strategy for risk takers. Let's let's call it what it is. People are taking a risk to buy in real estate or to invest in real estate. There's risk. And in exchange for taking that risk, there is an additional benefit that goes with real estate investors, and it's called tax deferral using the 1031 exchange code. It's been on the IRS's uh, the, uh, Internal Revenue Code's uh, books since 1921. We're talking about a law that's been in existence for nearly 100 years. And you make a great point, Brad. This is not a loophole. 88% of exchange buyers, 88% uh, of 1031 exchangers, I should say, taxpayers, eventually pay their taxes. 88% eventually pay their taxes. Because the way a 1031 exchange works, you can defer, you can defer, you can defer. Eventually, you can go all the way to, unfortunately, death or expiration. And uh, your heirs can inherit those properties or the real estate, and they get what's called a stepped-up basis, and they wouldn't pay taxes. So there is an estate planning technique or tool that comes out of 1031 exchanges. However, most investors don't do it that way. Most investors somewhere along the way decide they need the liquidity and they're going to pay the taxes. And so 88% pay their taxes. It is in a, a tax deferral strategy. It is not a tax avoidance strategy. I want to be clear about that. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, and I, I'll just, I, I want to sum up this. We actually provided an article last this summer um, for our uh, subscribers at IREE. Um, it's, the title is For Sale, $3.7 billion trophy towers owned by Bernado and the Trump Organization. So, how did Trump get involved in this $3.7 billion? There's two properties. I've been to both of them. And actually, I've written about both of them extensively in my book, The Trump Factor, which was published in 2016. Um, $3.7 billion, potentially. And Trump owns 30% of those buildings. And how did he get there? The 1031 exchange. He exchanged what? those properties into these assets, along with Renato. So at some point, at some point, Trump could, a Trump organization, it may be Eric, it might be Barron, you know, but at some point, there will be a, a liquidity event, we'll call it, and Trump, will, Trump organization will probably no longer utilize the 1031 exchange, and there'll be some pretty big taxes being paid. Absolutely. So, um, the government will get their share, and back to your original question that I kind of... Um, uh, just uh, sort of drove past, if you will, the question about what would your mom do if, you know, and I, I don't think about Trump. Uh, I mean, he's, he's made his billions, and he's done quite well, and he's taken advantage, again, of a legitimate provision in the U.S. tax code known as a 1031 exchange. But look at all the risk he took to get to that $3.8 billion stake that he has in that property. Look at all the risk. Look at all the capital expended. Look at all the personal guarantees that were provided along the way. There's a lot of risk that went into making that capital. 
So to think that you can defer some taxes and continue to roll that money into more productive real estate down the road and create more jobs, by the way, is not a bad thing for our economy. We have to kind of reverse engineer our thinking that the 1031 exchange is just for a bunch of wealthy people to never pay taxes. No, it's a way to stimulate our economy and keep capital productive and efficient in our economy and create jobs in our economy. So we've got to put a, a, a different outlook or a different lens on the benefits of the 1031 exchange and who really benefits from it. If your mom were to pay her taxes on $150,000, let's assume it's all gain, she's gonna pay close to $50,000 in taxes on $150,000 of equity that she could reinvest. Think about a third of that capital going away. Yeah. I don't know, would, would 40, does forty-five dollars or $50,000 matter to your mom, Brad? Not well, only to the, to the capital you, loss, but the earning power on that money is forever lost. And Buffett calls compounding the eighth wonder of the world. So if you think about it, when you pay tax, it's like a two base out in baseball. It's like a double play. You've lost your capital. Your, your earning engine just got cut down by 30%. But you've also lost the compounded effect of the earning potential on that money for the rest of your life. Would that matter to your mom? It would matter a lot. And, and it would also matter that, to your point, that she's not having to deal with the four T's uh, and go collect that, that rent, make sure it gets there. All the headaches that we all know all too well as landlords. And so um, no, that's, that's definitely a sleep well at night strategy. And I'll tell you what, on one of the next podcasts, I'm going to, I'm going to, we don't have time today, but um, I've written about this. So full transparency. I also have a net operating loss that is just under $2 million. Brad Thomas, $2 million. Now, I took a lot of risk to make that happen. <laughs> and um, we're going to talk about net operating losses on another section of the podcast, another day, I guess I'll say. Um, but Brad, I, I wanted to thank you for your time today and really getting into the weeds on, on, on this business. And, and again, this is your, this is your background. Uh, Brad Watt, again, he's, a, he's Petra Capital uh, properties. And Brad, where can, uh, where can people reach you? What's the best place? Do you have a website? Uh, yeah, you can go to our website, uh, petracapitalproperties.com, petracapitalproperties.com. Uh, and then they can, of course, reach me once they get to our website. Uh, my email is bradwatt, W-A-T-T, at petracapitalproperties.com. And uh, we'd encourage people to go to our website. It's very educational, very instructional. Uh, we don't uh, sell anybody anything. Uh, we provide diversified 1031 solutions. And we have a very proprietary uh, FinTech, uh, financial technology model that we built just for our platform, for our clients, that basically allows us to uh, create a database of all the DSTs in the country that are available and then go through based on a client's risk tolerances and their investment objectives. We take that information and put it into our FinTech model. And we actually have an algorithm that we created that aligns and matches the best portfolio for that client. So it's really a, if you want to think about it, it's kind of a 1031match.com. And we created that program and that technology for our clients. And I think uh, as we demonstrate this, and showcase it to our clients, which we do very interactively on a, an online uh, presentation. 
they can actually watch their portfolio being constructed in real time uh, right before their eyes. So it's, uh, it's highly transparent and very collaborative and investors love it. So I would encourage people to check us out and uh, look at the Petra difference, if you will, and how we do not just product placement, but portfolio planning. We think the, the latter is essential as you get later in life. You need money to work for you because you're not working for money anymore. So it's important to get that portfolio right for your 1031. Thank so you. Thank again, you, Brad. Brad. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate thank, it. Thank you. And I hope my mom is, is listening. And uh, <laughs> Hey, mom. <laughs> hey, thanks for, thanks for LinkedIn and me, by the way, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, thank you everybody all right. for listening to Thanks, me. guys. And, uh, Take Brad, care. Touch. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.